Hello, my name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to today's podcast of Mercy Unbound. Today, I get to speak with Dr. Ray Gerwendy, a well-known mental health counselor seen on EW10 on radio. He's written numerous books, and today we're going to talk about his book, Marriage, Small Steps, Big Rewards, uh, small steps that can significantly help a couple's marriage get back on track, and if it's a good marriage, make it even better. I hope you enjoy the show. Please subscribe and share with your friends. Have a blessed day. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to Mercy Unbound. It's a series that aims to provide hope and avenue for healing, and one that will help you understand and then live the great mercy of God. With me today, I have Dr. Ray Garendi. He's well-known. You've seen him on EW10. You've heard him on the radio. He's written many books. He's actually been on the show before, and uh, we're going to talk today about one of his books, Marriage, Small Steps, Big Rewards. It's available at drfordoctordrray.com, and it's an easy-to-read booklet. It's, it's so practical, and yet, why don't we do these things to help our marriages? Uh, Ray's a well-known counselor mental health therapist. And uh, thank you again, Dr. Ray, for joining me on Mercy Unbound. Thanks, Dr. Brian. Appreciate it. Well, in your book, you outline 10 small steps, as well as common rebuttal points is why we humans don't, you know, follow those steps that can significantly improve a, a couple's marriage and help it get it back on track. You mentioned there's no magic bullet, you know, it does require effort. And it will help couples work better together. And uh, interestingly, you mentioned it not only helps their marriage, but it will help them become better parents. Because you mentioned in your introduction about how oftentimes children's behavior may be off course a little bit because of parenting. Can you explain that a little bit? What point you were making there about the parenting? Some years ago, Brian, I wrote a book called Back to the Family. And we asked good parents what makes their marriage good. And one father simply said, love your wife. That was his response. <laughs> Many of the people who come to my office come not because the kid per se is giving them problems. It's because they're not only not on the same page in their parenting marriage, they ain't on the same planet. And so as a result, there's all kinds of discipline problems because they disagree. One thinks the other's too harsh. One psychologically second guessing the other. One feels guilty and on and on. So the marriage, interestingly enough, Dr. Brian, do you know one of the top three reasons that second marriages fail at a higher rate than first marriages? Well, not being an expert in your area, I would probably guess because they didn't learn from the first, but. Well, well you got a good point there. Yeah, I'm bringing me into the next marriage. The kids. Really? Absolutely. The kids are a number one reason because they both are bringing in kids generally from their marriages. And now you got the parent, step-parent disagreement, feel guilty, Disney World weekend, all of that just really wreaks havoc on this new relationship. Hmm, very interesting. You know, in your first three points, it was almost like a uh, spiritual exercise. The, the first one you, you start with, say, I'm sorry. 
such a simple thing to say, but we humans have found it so difficult uh, to spit out, haven't we? There's several reasons for that. One is when I say I'm sorry, in my mind, it may not mean I'm sorry. It may mean I'm an awful person. I'm a wretched person. I'm always wrong. That's one. Another thing it might mean is, well, if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting you're all right. That none of this is you. It's all me. And you could interpret it that way. That's another reason I don't say I'm sorry. A lot of times I'll tell spouses, I will say, if you have a spouse who has a hard time saying I'm sorry, it's not because they're real secure in themselves. It's not because they always think they're right. It is because they're insecure. When you can't say I'm sorry, that is one great sign that you're not a very confident person and you cannot admit I was wrong. Now, there's an interesting thing about I'm sorry, Dr. Brian. I ask people what their PAP is. Now, PAP stands for personal apology percentage. In other words, in my mind, that's always that way, it's subjective. How wrong do I have to be before I say I'm sorry? Let's say that myself and my wife get into an argument and I feel she's badgering me and I finally lose a grip and I curse. So later, I think to myself, well, you know, I didn't start it. She kept it going, but I did cuss. So, okay, I put a percentage on it. Maybe I was 10% wrong. Am I willing to apologize for my 10%? I'm sorry I cursed. That's all I'm apologizing for. I'm not apologizing and saying I was 100% wrong. I'm just simply saying I shouldn't have cursed. I'm sorry. So how low does your personal apology percentage have to be before you say, I'm sorry? Most people, it's 50%. They got to think they're at least half wrong before they'll say, I'm sorry. But the, but the catch in that, Dr. Brian, is that it's my judgment. I grade me easy. You know, I really do. I can't go out and get 100 people to look at my argument and say, well, in our opinion, Ray was 72% wrong. No, 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 no. My judgment, I was 24% wrong. That's, that's very interesting. Doesn't the world make it more difficult sometimes to say our sorry? Because doesn't that require some semblance of humility, which the world looks down as, as a, not a good thing? You know, it's not a virtue. It's a weakness. And uh, the other person will just perceive, well, they'll think they're right all the time if I say I'm sorry. And some people won't say I'm sorry because they don't want it thrown back in their face. Oh, oh, you're sorry. Sorry's just a word. You know, you're not going to, if you're, if you're sorry, you're going to change. You're going to show you're sorry. And I always use this example. <clears throat> I'll ask folks, you go to confession. Now, a few will say yes. I'll say, how would you like the priest that you've been going to for nine years and you say the same sins every time you go in? How would you like the priest to say, no, no, I'm not giving you absolution. You've been saying the same stuff for nine years. I really don't think you're sorry because if you were sorry, you'd change. Why aren't you changing? So that's, that's one thing. People are afraid the sorry is going to get thrown back in their face. But there's an interesting thing about I'm sorry. 
I went one time to get flowers for my wife. I figured it's about time. I got her flowers on our wedding rehearsal dinner. 30 some years later, time for, time for some more flowers. Don't want to push it. The girl behind the stand said, what'd you do wrong? <laughs> I went, huh? said, every guy that comes in here to buy flowers and it's not an occasion is apologizing. I said, well, wait a minute. You don't know me and my wife. We have a very different relationship. So I went home. I'm very proud of like a little boy, you know, who goes and pulls stink weeds out of the field and hands it to his mom. I handed these flowers to my wife. She said, what'd you do wrong, Ray? I said, did you ever work at a florist? <laughs> Sorry is one of those things. It's interesting. Many guys especially will say this to me. I may not say I'm sorry, but I act I'm sorry. I act nicer. I'm more pleasant. I'm more affectionate. I'm kinder. So, so I really didn't say I'm sorry, but I acted I'm sorry. That's one of the few pieces of behavior in life that it is easier to act than to say. Most things it's easier to say, hey, I'm going to call you sometime, okay? We'll get together. We'll have some breakfast. Now, that's real easy to say, but to actually do that's a lot harder. Hey, grandma, I know I haven't been there for a long time, but I'm going to try to get there next week, okay? Now, aren't I nice? I'm promising grandma I'm going to come next week, but I didn't make it, but I said I would. Sorry is the exact opposite. It's easier to act sorry than it is to say sorry. It really is, is difficult. You know, I was thinking of a friend who got into a disagreement with one of their friends, and they told me the story that this person really was inappropriate and overstepped the blinds and using all kinds of nasty words and things, but my friend lost it. And I said, well, that's all the other person's going to remember. They're not going to remember how they were wrong and said things. And so you have to say you're sorry. And you know, like you were talking about the husband who cursed, um, you there, even if it's only 5%, <laughs> say you're sorry for what you did. You know, it's just a tough thing. And uh... Christians are obliged to do that. We are not obliged to look at our spouse or another person and say, well, if they were sorry too, then I would be. No, that's not in our rule book. Right. You know, step two was interesting. Uh, it's titled, Don't Say It. And I, I think of the scripture verse, uh, how the tongue is such a small organ, but it can do great damage. And uh, tell us what you, why you put that as number two. Most of the things that I regret, Brian, I said in the heat of emotion. It wasn't common for me to think about something and then lash out at somebody. No, if I'm going to lash out, it's going to be because my emotions are surging. And I realized the lesson I took from basketball when I used to play basketball. When I felt myself getting intense because somebody elbowed me and didn't call a foul. I knew I'd better pull myself out of that game before I did something because the emotions would drag me along. It's the same thing with don't say it. If I can hold myself for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 
without saying what I most want to say. I mean, I got the urge. It's just almost overwhelming to say this. If I can, if I can just hold it. Emotions dissipate quickly. The spike of the emotion doesn't last very long. Oh, it'll linger, but it'll linger at a level less so that I can control it. I find that the first 10, 15 seconds of that spike is when I'm going to say something I regret. There's a saying, you never have to apologize for what you didn't say. And I cannot tell you how many times later I was grateful to myself for not saying what I so much wanted to say in those 10 seconds. Isn't that a skill like really many of the points? Um, you have to work at it and realize that it's a problem. Um, you know, I think of my son who works out and muscles and he's in great shape and runs and this and that, but keeping your mouth quiet you really have to work at it. It's a, it's, a, it's a problem for so many of us. Your son didn't walk into that gym the first day he was there and grabbed the 90-pound dumbbells and started doing bench presses with 90-pound dumbbells. He didn't. He grabbed 40s or 50s. But after about a year, those 90-pound dumbbells were doable because he trained up to it. It's the same thing with your mouth. It's really hard to control that four ounce piece of flesh initially, but you do get better at it. And one of the reasons you get better at it is because you're so relieved you didn't do it. That's the payoff. That's the reward. Whoo, I dodged that bullet. I am so glad I didn't say what I wanted to say during those 27 seconds. And I, and I think that's real spiritual progress. You know, we're all working. We're all saints under construction, and we just have to keep trying. If we fall down, we get up and keep going. Mm -hmm. But the, the third point, again, I thought was interesting. Listen a minute. And you mentioned about a closed mouth, you know, won't get a foot in it. And um, you talk about active and passive listening. What, what did you mean by that? Well, those are old psychological terms. Active listening essentially means you're trying to understand what the other person is saying. Passive listening is you're just sort of there and you're letting the words come in. What I meant in that particular step is a, a, a client will come into my office with his or her spouse and the spouse will say, I get really frustrated because my spouse does not defend me to her mother, his mother. And I'll turn to the spouse. I say, do you, do you know why she's so frustrated about that? No. How long you've been married? 17 years. You don't know why she thinks you don't back her up with your mother? Have you ever asked her? So the question becomes, as a spouse, I'm going to just listen for one minute. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to argue back. I'm just going to sit and I'm going to hear what's inside your head. You know, Brian, when people come into my office, some of the stuff they tell me, there's a part of me that just wants to scream. I can't believe you're saying this. I can't believe you think this way. I can't believe you did that. But what do I do? I sit and I listen and I try to take it in and I try to figure out where they're coming from and why they're doing this. And that's what I tell spouses. 
Do you really know why your spouse thinks the way he or she does? Listen, just, just hear it. Yeah, but I think it's ridiculous. When I hear it, I want to go, I want to go up the wall because it's so ridiculous. And besides, you're accusing me and I don't want to be accused. Just they ain't going to go anywhere if you just sit there for one minute. And the interesting thing about listening for one minute, many people will soften if they think that you're trying to understand them. Even if inside your head you think this is the most absurd, ridiculous thing I ever heard, and I can't believe this. No wonder he or she's a nutcase. If you don't do anything other than just try to listen and see the thinking behind the emotion or the behavior, the other person actually feels a little more appreciated. They'll soften a little bit in their craziness. You know, even in my own walk, I really realize that's one of my many faults, but I usually am coming up with a rebuttal in my head while they're still talking. That's right. I'm waiting for you to shut up so I can defend myself and say you too and all of the defenses that I have. That's exactly what we do. Pause, take a breath because it's my turn. And it's really not because we're jumping in way too early. Yes, that she said, and off to the races. You know, one of the reasons for not listening was if I stay quiet, my spouse will think that I agree with him or her. And uh, well, it's going to be clear you don't agree because if you speak up after a couple of minutes, it's going to be clear what you think. That's what I always tell them. I say, yeah, well, they'll think that until you open your mouth. And then they'll realize you may not necessarily agree with what they're saying, but you didn't immediately jump in to make them feel like I can't tell you what I think because you're going to slap me down as soon as I do. Or another one you mentioned was uh, what I could hear might upset me. So I shut them out. You know, you're not even listening at that point. Yeah, that's the thing about listening. You got to try to figure out why they think the way they do even if it's ridiculous. I couldn't be a good psychologist if I immediately judge what somebody's telling me is ridiculous. After all, they're coming to me because their lives are a mess in some way or another. And I have to listen and try to understand how they got to that point. What thinking brought them there? What kind of conduct brought them there? What emotions battered them around? I got to know that before I say anything, because if I immediately leap in, well, there's a pretty good chance I'm one, going to be wrong, and two, they're going to storm out of the office. You know, when I was reading your book, it reminded me years ago, my parents are both deceased now, but um, dad and mom had both taken Dale Carnegie courses when they were younger. And uh, in his book, you know, how to make friends and influence people, Carnegie talked about how he would go to a party and he would actually maybe study the host and find out what they did, what their hobbies were and things. And he would just ask questions, which is number four. And uh, these people would just spend the whole night talking about themselves. And yes. they'd leave the party saying, well, that Dale Carnegie, he was the most fun guy to be with. And he never had to say a word. So where were you going with ask a few questions in relationships? Carnegie's stealing my material. You know, now he stole it years before I even wrote it, but nevertheless, have you ever walked away from someone like Carnegie pointed to and you said, 
boy, I like that person. My first impression of that individual, I, I just really like them. And if you notice, they kept the conversation focused on you. They wanted to hear about you. They wanted to hear about your kids. They wanted to hear about your job. They wanted to hear about what you liked. They wanted to hear about what you didn't like. They just, everything you said spurred another question in them. And it wasn't a probing, interrogating kind of question. It was, gee, I'm really interested in what you have to say. 90% of people, in my informal opinion, will not say, hey, now you've got me talking about myself. I want to hear about you. No, no, no. 90% of people, and not because they're mean, selfish people, but it's, it's just natural. You've got me so easily just talking about my grandkids, about my kids, about my career, about my profession, about what I've done in my yard, whatever. My son asked me one time, he was 17. He said, hey, dad, on a, you know, on a date, how do I make a good first impression? I say, hey, John, that's easy. You ask her all about herself. You don't be concerned about telling her all about you. you. Ask her all about herself. It's a guaranteed winner. You know, my wife is very good at that. When we have social events or go somewhere and community events, she's always trying to draw people out to let them open up. They feel more comfortable. They feel like they're able to express themselves. But that that's an art too, isn't it? It's a skill. It's very much a skill. And I have the advantage because that's what I do for a living. I ask questions for a living, but you can do it. It doesn't, asking questions is easy. So how many kids do you have? Oh, what's their names? Oh, what's the oldest like? See, you don't, you don't have to be a college graduate to ask questions like that. That's as easy as it gets. You know, another one, again, thinking of the spiritual walk, but your point five is um, accept it. And what do you mean by that? I don't mean automatically think what you're hearing or what your spouse is doing is good or moral or helpful. I mean, at some point in most relationships, you have to get to the point where you say, I don't want this to be ongoing friction. When I deal with marriage counseling, a lot of the problems people tell me about have been going on for years and years and years and years. And they're not big things. She's always late. She's always late. I told her and I told her and I told her she's always late. Well, how long have you been married? 24 years. I, I, are you just going to get to a point where you finally realize I, I'm going to just live with this? Well, he doesn't pick up after himself. I've told him. I've told him. I've told him. Okay. Is, is it a good marriage? Yes, we have a wonderful marriage. I love my spouse. Okay, then just, what are you going to do about this? You're going to keep, are you going to keep hammering about it? Well, I don't want him to think he can get away with this. Yeah, but you've been saying this for 27 years. Well, if he loved me, he would. See, when you personalize it like that, that's one of the, that's one of the main reasons people can't accept it. You're doing this because you don't care enough about me. You're doing this because you don't care what I think. You're doing this because you don't love me enough. You're doing, no, maybe you're just doing this because you're lazy. You're doing this because you're self-centered. You're doing this because you don't think. Sure. And I think, so many people will say in a marriage, you got to have a lot of communication. You know, Brian, I think when you have to have a whole lot of communication in a marriage, that could be one sign it ain't a good marriage. 
Because people who live together in a marriage and get to know each other, little by little, the stuff that used to be a problem, they either lay it aside, they either accept it as part of their spouse's personality, they quit hammering the same stuff for years on end. At some point, most of the stuff ceases to be issues, and therefore it ceases to be stuff you got to communicate about. The good marriages really don't have a whole lot of that kind of emotional communications. You know, I was thinking of the serenity prayer while you were talking of God grant me the serenity to change, accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And some people lack that insight of wisdom to, is this worth fighting a war over here, uh, over some of these issues that may never change? One of the most common questions I get, wherever it is, on radio, TV, therapy, Tell me how to make another person be different. That question is as common as tell me how to make me be different. Tell me how to make my mother-in-law not be like that. Tell me how to make my spouse think this way. Tell me how to make my adult child act this way. Tell me how to make my grandson do this. That's like, man, I'll tell you, I have a hard enough time getting you to do it supposed to get another person to do it yeah yeah it kind of goes back to i i realized over the years with my kids we have a large family and i used to give all these great lectures i thought and then i realized they're going in one no. next shut it man shut I, it and now i realize i got to set the example and hopefully they'll see it and all i can do is be the best i can be and my wife and i say nothing to however our children are raising the grandchildren. If they ask me, I will get my attorney to get a signed copy that they have asked my advice and I will keep a triplicate in my safe. My son has a little, couple little girls. And when his little girl was about two, he said, hey dad, can I ask you something? And I said, wait, wait, Andrew, you're, you're asking me my opinion? Really? Uh, excuse me. I'm just starting to cry here a little bit. You know, we don't say a word unless we are directly asked. And that's something I'm working on too, because I realize it's best to, we had our chance with our kids. It's their turn. And I'm just grandpa, but um, well, Dr. Ray, we've only covered five of the points, but we could go on and on, but uh, I know your time is short and uh, I'm just going to encourage people to get your book. Marriage, Small Steps, Big Rewards, available at drray.com. Thank you for joining uh, me today on Mercy Unbound. People, subscribe to the show. Share these great talks. There's a lot of stuff to really eat and digest and chew about here. And uh, share it with your contacts. And I want to thank everybody for joining me today on Mercy Unbound. And thanks again, Dr. Ray. Thanks, Brian. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel for the video portion. The podcast can be heard at anchor.fm slash drbryan, B-R-Y-A-N, Thatcher, T-H-A-T-C-H-E-R, and on all the major podcast forums. I would love to speak at your church or conference, and please consider supporting our efforts to spread the truth to a hurting world. Thank you again, and for more information, go to the website at drbryanthatcher.com.